Welcome to Trinity Church. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors uh, here. And at this point in our service, uh, we have the opportunity, privilege to open up God's word and let the Spirit be our teacher. Uh, people come to God's word for numerous different things. Some people co- primarily come to God's word for information. That, that could be People who are skeptical of what the Bible says come into the Bible trying to prove that it's a hoax, trying to prove that Jesus got it all wrong. It could also be people who generally trust the Bible, interested in what the Bible has to say about how we got here, how things are going to go down in the end, intrigued by the different authors of Scripture and what they have to say. On the other end of the spectrum... Though there, there are people who primarily come to the Bible for inspiration. We, we see this in our culture all the time. People looking for, hey, I, I, need some, I need some pick-me-up to get through this next week. I need to go to church. I need to hear um, from the, this good book. I, I need a reminder of you know, being kind to one another. I need my kids to be reminded to be kind to others so they don't you know, kill each other in the process. Um, I, I need to feel like I have a purpose in life. So, so how should we, as Trinity Church, come to God's Word today? Do, do we come for information? Yeah, absolutely. The, the Bible isn't a collection of fairy tales. It presents facts and rests uh, on the truth of those facts. You do not have Christianity if God didn't actually create the world, if Jesus didn't actually walk on this planet, he didn't live a perfect life, he didn't uh, die physically, die in our place, and then rise to life, not metaphorically, actually rise to life on the third day. You probably remember, we, we, we recite those uh, beliefs oh, very regularly as we read the Nicene Creed together, as we read the Apostles a creed together as a church is what Christians have always believed and what the Bible very clearly teaches. But, but just knowing those facts isn't going to do anything for us. You know, Satan has his PhD in biblical studies and he hates God. Like, we don't want to be like him. There are insightful commentaries you can read um, on the text of the Bible, text of Scripture, written by people, men and women, who you likely will not see in heaven, who do not love Jesus, but consider it uh, solely an academic exercise. So on the other hand, should we, should we come to the scripture for inspiration? Well, well y- yes, again. But if it's inspiration with little regard for truth, you know, our, our best bet is to Get a smoke machine in here, uh, turn to Dalen on auto-tune, repeating one catchy phrase for five minutes. Me to focus on stories that warm your heart and use scripture as a launching pad into what you guys want to hear. But, but that, that's not the type of inspiration we get from scripture. What do we come here for? We come for transformation. It's information, but information that changes who we are and how we live. So we're going to continue today in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. 
as we wrap up chapter 9. We've seen that Matthew isn't uh, just writing facts about Jesus' life so, so we can fill our brains with them. He wants us to take those facts and uh, to live as changed people because we've encountered the living Jesus. Our, our passage today is uh, Matthew 9, uh, 35 through 38. It, it, it is no different as we see a summary of Jesus' ministry uh, that we've seen in the last uh, couple chapters and a call to the disciples that will continue on and uh, lead into chapter 10. Uh, if you don't have a, a Bible, there's uh, one in one of the seat backs in front of you. You can also lift your hand. Alex would be more than happy to get you a listening guide uh, from the back. Matthew chapter 9, starting with verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Pray with me. Father God, when we've come to your word, we, we need to hear from you. We, we need the spirit to do his work. Help us to tune out all the other things in our lives, clamoring for our attention, clamoring to distract us from hearing from you, from receiving the information and being changed, being transformed uh, by it. We recognize our utter inadequacy to accomplish anything of lasting spiritual value if you do not do the work. So we, we pray that today you would do that. May we leave different because we've seen you, we've encountered you, and we've been changed uh, by your spirit. We pray this all in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So you probably saw in our, the passage we just read the description, harassed and helpless. So I was thinking, like, what do, first thing that comes to my mind when you think harassed and helpless? Well, in my mind, what comes one word, mercy. No, not saying, oh, mercy, though I say that a lot for another reason. But um, our middle daughter, um, as she plays with Pippa, our dog, and uh, she thinks that Pippa is full-on attacking her. That could happen for a variety of reasons. Mercy could pull the dog's tail, could sit on her, could try to ride her as a horse, could tackle her, could chase her with a fly swatter, could put a bow on her, could get in her cage, and Pippa wasn't happy about that, you know, stealing her cage. All kinds of reasons that uh, Mercy could anger uh, Pippa. And when, when Pippa wants to uh, play a little uh, rough with Mercy, thinking she's just playing with her, what does Mercy do? Does she run away from the dog? Nope, usually not. She just stands there 
and wails and cries for rescue. She is wholly incapable of de-escalating the situation. And she just cries and waits for me to come or Michelle to come and rescue her. And then as I, you know, carry her away from her dog that's attacking her, what does she talk about? Well, she wants a cat to bite the cat. <laughs> Why does she want a cat? Well, to bite Pippa's bum off. To, to me, like, she epitomizes the description harassed and helpless. I can't help but love her and come to her rescue. And, and that's exactly how Jesus describes the crowds in his day. Harassed and helpless. And, and Jesus' attitude uh, toward the harassed and helpless crowds uh, shapes Jesus' ministry. And, and it should shape ours too. We see that Jesus sets the example. And, and then it, we'll see in the next uh, chapter here that he sends out his followers. Our passage today perfectly sums up uh, what Jesus has been doing in the last uh, couple chapters and then you know, sets the stage for the mission of the disciples that we'll see coming up uh, next week. And, and uh, how is Jesus' ministry described? Verse 35 again. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. I, I love the beautiful balance and rhythm of there's the three participles, each followed by a, a few words. He, he went teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdoms, he, kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. What Matthew has been describing in the last two chapters of Jesus' ministry in Capernaum was typical and not meant to be an exhaustive account of all the ministry that Jesus was engaging in, of all of Jesus' activity. And this uh, sets the stage for chapter 10 with the need for more than just Jesus going about performing these missionary activities of teaching, of preaching, or proclaiming, of healing. And, and as we've uh, been studying for uh, numerous weeks now, and been struck over and over again with the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah, the messianic healer who's come to make the lame a walk, to make the deaf hear, to demonstrate his power over demons, even raise the dead to life. He has been uh, preaching and teaching, just as we saw in the Sermon on the Mount a, a few chapters ago. So, so what value do we find from this summary of the ministry of Jesus throughout all of the cities and villages? Oh, well, again, it's not just meant for information, but is meant to impact us and, and our ministry. And Jesus calls us to ministry in word and deed. You see, he taught in the synagogues, a Jewish place of worship, proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, demonstrated that the kingdom had, arise, had arrived as he healed those with diseases, afflictions. Uh, our ministry isn't identical 
to that of Jesus. We are not God in the flesh. Most of us do not have an open door uh, at synagogues to reach people through uh, teaching there. But, but Matthew intends for us to, to see the similarity in the ministry we're called to, to that of Jesus. Jesus as our example in ministry in word and deed. Christians have a tendency to focus on one or the other, to focus on engaging in ministry in word or, or ministry in deed, often to the near exclusion of the other. Here, Jesus calls us to both. So, so we're supposed to be a church proclaiming the gospel boldly and without apology. You know, that, that's why we gather here on Sundays, preaching, singing the songs that we sing, reading from uh, the creeds. And that, that's what ha- is happening now in uh, Trinity Kids as we're teaching our kids uh, these uh, truths. Well, we do that in community groups as we study God's word, proclaim these truths to one another. And we do that in various outreaches. You know, think uh, VBS as we get an opportunity to uh, teach these ki- uh, truths to kids. Uh, or individually as we reach out to um, neighbors, people in our spheres of influence, share the good news with them. But, but we don't want to forget that we're called to both and here, not either or. Our actions matter just as do our words. Uh, how we live either adds credibility to our words or shows us to be the hypocrites that the world already is convinced we are. Uh, how I use my money either shows that I believe in Jesus' kingdom and see resources as a gift from God, but not a treasure, and that I prioritize uh, God's kingdom. How, how I work will either add evidence to the minds of my coworkers as to, to that Jesus has changed my life, that something is attractively different about me, or, or gives them a, just another reason to dismiss this whole Christianity thing. Uh, how I use my time will reveal whether I care about people or whether I'm just trying to win an argument, prove myself to be right, that I figured it all out. So let's talk about in community group this week, you know, how we're doing in ministry in word and ministry in deed. You know, some of us might be inclined more to ministry in word, to talking about our faith with others. But we may need to work on living in a way that showcases the attractiveness of God's kingdom. Let's help each other out in that this week. Share ways to focus on the main thing. Making sure we're not just, again, winning an argument, but also proving that we care about the person. On the other hand, some of us here might be more inclined uh, to rely on living like a Christian, but not boldly proclaiming the gospel. Again, l- l- let's help each other out. That's what the church is for. Help each other out in this. That it doesn't have to be an awkward, evangelistic, canned spiel 
that we have to present, help each other out finding inroads for the gospel, uh, how to, uh, again, keep the main message instead of getting sidetracked with uh, truths that are less than helpful at, at a given time. And Jesus uh, calls us to be followers of him and to minister in word and deed. And may we boldly proclaim the good news and back it up with lives uh, that uh, showcase God and God's kingdom uh, to others in, in how we live and how we relate to others. And, and you might ask, how should we relate to others? Well, let, let's look at the next verse here as we get a glimpse into the heart of Jesus. Verse 36. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So here we see that Jesus calls us to cultivate compassion. He perceives the spiritual condition of the crowds harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He he gives a description and, and the simile of sheep without a shepherd, you know, providing concrete imagery for Jesus' audience and bringing the point home. I'm not going to go into an in-depth lesson on sheep because I'm not the most knowledgeable person about sheep. Let me just be honest with you there. But just a few basic facts to help unpack uh, this imagery here. Uh, Sheep aren't the smartest animals on the planet. They're not as dumb as some people might make them out to be. But a domestic sheep, like what's described in this passage by Jesus, in contrast maybe to wild sheep, uh, aren't surviving all that long without a shepherd. They like to stay together, which in one sense is, is wise for safety. Uh, but the flock could move any direction following any one sheep. You might think that's probably not a good idea. Not, not too good for their safety. Yeah, yeah. Well, it could present a lot of uh, dangers there. And, and they're not the most discerning in what they're eating, drinking, and setting themselves up to the next day have quality food, have water to drink. And, and vulnerable to all kinds of nasty things, you know, getting in their wool if they go unsheared, lacking a shepherd caring for them. And Jesus' recognition of the spiritual condition of the crowds leads to compassion and action, as we'll see in the coming verses. And this uh, shepherd imagery is becoming clearer and clearer and more robust uh, throughout uh, this Gospel of Matthew. In uh, chapter 2, verse 6, Matthew argued that Jesus had arrived as a a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And that's exactly what the people need. They need this eschatological shepherd. That's exactly what they've been waiting for, expecting this shepherd since the Old Testament days. Ezekiel 37. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king 
over all of them, and they shall no longer shall be no longer two nations, and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Micah 5. You might remember reading this often at Christmas time. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now uh, he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. They've been eagerly awaiting this Davidic Messiah come to be their everlasting shepherd. And here he is. Jesus is right in front of them. This shepherd they've been waiting for. And what, what state does Jesus find his sheep in? What well, describes it right here? They are sheep without a shepherd. That is quite an indictment of the current religious leaders in Israel. As we read earlier, as Todd read for us from Ezekiel, an indictment of the leaders in that day that they were not feeding God's sheep. They, they were using them for their own gain. And things hadn't changed all that much. Instead of reforming God's people, these religious leaders had impeded their, their relationship with God. This is not good. They are sheep without a shepherd. And, and the original audience, knowing the Old Testament well, would immediately thought of the shepherd Moses. Maybe not the first uh, shepherd in the Old Testament you would think of, but, but that's who they would have thought of. Moses, who led their ancestors out of Egypt. The, the concern in Numbers uh, 27, verse 17, was that at Moses' departure, the people would be, uses this word, as sheep without a shepherd. Those words would ring in the ears of the original hearers of this gospel. And guess what? A new and better Moses has arrived to shepherd his people Israel. This is what they had been longing for. This is what they wanted. This is what they so desperately needed. And by the way, as we've already started to see in this gospel, this is going to include a lot more people than they, they were originally thinking that they would include a lot more than just those of an ethnic bloodline of 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would include uh, followers of Jesus from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. But let's stop right there. Do you love this Jesus? Does he delight you? Matthew wants us to see this and to be in awe of this Jesus. He's the Davidic shepherd Messiah. The entire Old Testament has been pointing to. He's this new and better Moses come to shepherd his people who are like sheep without a shepherd before his arrival. Do you love this Jesus? Does he bring you joy today? Or or do you think you've figured this Jesus all out? You've learned everything you need to know about him. You've read this gospel. You've read other gospels uh, in the canon before. Feel no need to hear it afresh. No, no, no. You don't move beyond Jesus and the gospel. We were designed to grow deeper in Jesus, deeper in the gospel. It's a lifelong pursuit that continues for us into eternity. And the compassion of Jesus in this passage should inspire compassion in the lives of those of us who claim to be followers of him. Are we marked by compassion toward those who have been led astray and so desperately need Jesus? I believe it's fair to say that our response toward crowds like those that Jesus sees and has compassion on, our response more often, not so good attitudes, attitudes like anger, maybe resignation. We often don't want to admit it, but sometimes we're convinced that there's virtually nothing we can do with all the lostness present around us. We've become numb to it. Uh, The fact that all these people are running down a path to hell doesn't seem to bother us all that much. We don't lose sleep over it. It just feels like it is what it is. So deal with it. They've been blinded. They are doing what sinners do. They try to deal with emptiness with earthly possessions, medication, getting drunk, and so on. And we we sometimes see ourselves in a battle of us versus them. They they seem like a burden to us. And wouldn't it be easier if we just focused on our own clan? And we wonder if they'll ever get it. Does it bother you today that there are lots of people around us here in Oldham County, our Louisville area, who don't know and love Jesus? Does it bother you that you have friends, coworkers, acquaintances, maybe even who go to church and claim to be Christians, but their lives indicate otherwise? Does it bother you? Does it bother me that we have neighbors who don't love Jesus or aren't even, we aren't even sure of their spiritual condition? When you hear of a mega, past, uh, a mega church pastor who leaves the church, is kicked out of the church, 
due to sin. Is your first response, is my first response to pat myself on the back and say, well, at least we're not like them. Or I called it. I've spotted something in that person's life from early on. Or or do, do you, do I have compassion, the compassion of Jesus for the people in that church, for the people in that community? Let's talk in community group this week about how we need to develop this type of compassion. We want to have the compassion of Jesus for people. Often we treat people, Christians, who are overwhelmed with compassion as naive. Don't they know what that person has done? Don't they know how many times the person has been warned? But, but here's the kicker. This is Jesus. And he has compassion on the crowds as harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It isn't that Jesus doesn't believe in judgment. Heck, I mean, on the final day, he's the judge casting people out of his loving presence into hell. If anyone believes in judgment, it's, it's Jesus. And he knows everything about these people. He knows these people have sinned, that they have had opportunities to repent. And you know, they are victims of poor spiritual leadership of the Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees. But, but it's not that these individuals are without blame themselves. But Jesus has compassion on them. And we likewise should have compassion on people in our lives who need to meet Jesus, need to be changed by him. And, and the response of Jesus uh, doesn't stop with compassion. It, this compassion leads to action. Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus calls us to pray for more laborers to be sent out into God's harvest. So the metaphor here shifts from flock to field. It starts with a prayer for God to send out laborers. See, man can't create this harvest as God is the one who is the Lord of the harvest. Meaning there, he's sovereign over all of it. This concept of harvest, obviously the original audience knew this very well. And the pressing need for laborers as harvest was a limited time, you gotta gotta get this uh, crop before it uh, spoils. And the metaphor sh- shouldn't be pushed to its breaking point, but don't lose the urgency in this call or the the importance of what the laborers are being recruited for. And, and what does it mean that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few? God is calling a large number of people to faith in Jesus. But, but there's a need here for more than just Jesus traveling around and proclaiming this good news. That's why we're going to see in the next chapter. We're going to see 
this uh, call to the disciples as Jesus uh, sends them out. We're going to see as this uh, theme is building toward the great commission at the end of Matthew's gospel. Whereas Jesus sends out all his followers to the ends of the earth. Implication here is that this harvest has not been fully reaped. And just as applicable to, to us today as to the disciples in the first century. And what is the action here for us? It's to pray. A lot of us would think, but wouldn't it make more sense to say, to go, right? Yeah, and we're getting to that. Wait till the next chapter and see what, what happens there. And certainly at the end of Matthew's gospel. But, but to treat this as a transitional passage, you know, leading to the real action, or just a roundabout way of saying, go, you know, fails to do justice to the action that is present here in this passage, and that is to pray. We tend to not see prayer the way Jesus sees prayer. We see it as duty in, in terms of mission, as something like, well, if there's nothing else you can do to help people meet Jesus, if you're a shut-in, can't, there's no other options, well, you can pray. And that's true, but it's far more than this. Jesus sees this as vital for all his followers. This is for the front lines of ministry to the lost. It's not that mission stops with prayer, but it never gets started and will never produce the desired results without prayer. Why? Because look who is the Lord of the harvest. God is the Lord of the harvest. We can't manufacture these results. And, and honestly, I find that difficult to accept. You know, I spend most of my days at the hotel, you know, saying things like results aren't optional. And, and although in like the business world and stuff like that, there certainly are variables that, you know, if God wants to change things up, oh, God can certainly uh, change things up. But a lot of the results, you know, we're called to can be controlled. You know, you can work late. You can work, work really hard. You can um, do all kinds of things. You can not spend money. That's what I'm good at, not spending money. You, you can somewhat produce these type of results. Here's the problem. That doesn't work here in what we are, are called to. If God is the Lord of the harvest, we cannot produce these results. Mission doesn't work that way. I can't accomplish spiritual transformation just by getting people in seats, getting, you know, proclaiming the message. If God doesn't do the work, it's not going to happen. I can't change hearts. You can't change hearts. That's something that only God can do. God must do the heavy lifting. And therefore, the greatest work I can do in mission happens on my knees. Unless you think I'm advocating 
mission without actually going to the lost and sharing the good news to them. Don't forget the effect of this prayer. One of the effects is that it changes us. God changes us in in prayer. And and one surprising part, we we may have heard this uh, numerous times, you know, harvest is plentiful, laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The harvest seems like, all right, that's a good imagery for what we're, we're being called to here. But it would be a little bit surprising for the original hearers, original readers of this. The language of harvest was typically used in Jesus' day uh, and by Jesus himself of the last days, of the last day when God and his angels would be the ones who do the gathering. It was a metaphor for divine judgment. And this places the mission of the twelve and all of Jesus' fault. Jesus' followers in an eschatological context. We are in the last days as we live out this mission. And that should provide energy to our prayers. Our prayers to send out laborers into God's harvest. Because the harvest is plentiful. Understanding that we are in the last days. This is not an activity that will go on endlessly that type of urgency should be present in us and and what type of when he says laborers are few sending out laborers into harvest so all right well what should i be praying for sometimes we default to thinking okay so we need more people like the donaldson's we met uh, last week and we do We, we we need more full-time missionaries going all over the world to plant churches, to pastor churches, to reach um, people in remote parts of this earth. We absolutely need that. But that's not all or even primarily what is being talked about here. It's laborers into the harvest. That means not just professionals, you know, full-time paid staff being sent out uh, to the harvest. That means people like you and me all over this planet reaching people, reaching people at our jobs, in our neighborhoods. And that's what we're to pray for. Does your prayer life evidence this type of a prayer Praying earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his, his harvest. That there's a lot of really good things for us to pray for, and we should be in prayer for. But let us not forget mission and that God would send out people, send out people to all the way, you know, across the world and to next door, to neighborhoods around us here in Crestwood send out with the urgency understanding that this is an eschatological uh, call to mission. May, may we pray like this, pray like the disciples. And the good news is, I, I already explained why I'm 
somewhat uncomfortable with you know, God being the Lord of the harvest. These are results we can't produce. But that's also the good news for us. That we trust in a sovereign God who has said that there is a harvest. The harvest is plentiful. Because understanding that there would be no harvest if the results were left up to us. If we have to produce this, it's not going to happen. And the good news is that we don't have to. That God is the Lord of the harvest. We are being sent out into his harvest. We are praying that laborers would go out into his harvest. And he said that the harvest is plentiful. So this week, let's, let's think about that. Let's meditate on that. Let's reorient our prayer lives to this type of eschatological urgency that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And uh, may we be changed by God in light of that. Uh, pray with me.